Alrighty. So we're working our way through the book of Revelation, and we're up to chapter 11 this week. So we're not going to get through the whole of the chapter, but this is about God and his desire to see people saved, his desire to see people have the opportunity to turn from death and accept and embrace life. So what I'm going to do is, after I've prayed, I'm going to go through an introduction, and it's not the normal introduction that I usually do, you know, describing all the seals and judgments and how it all flows along. This is about the structure of the tribulation and the temple and what the purpose of the temple is, because we're going to see the temple in the tribulation, and why is it there? So I'll pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to gather here today. Thank you that you have given us your word. Lord, it is the greatest treasure that we can have because it reveals your heart to us and it shows us how to live and it shows us what the greatest treasure is and that is you. And we can experience complete and total fulfillment and satisfaction as we abide in you and experience your joy welling up inside of us, overflowing as we allow your spirit to control us. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what is the next prophetic event to happen for the world as it is now? It's the rapture. Yeah, that's right. So, according to the Bible, the next thing on the prophetic timeline is the rapture. What is the rapture? Well, that is when all the believers, all those who are truly saved and born again, are snatched up to meet Jesus in the clouds. And then we are taken to heaven to be with Jesus. Why this is important? Because after the rapture comes the tribulation. It's a period of seven years where God is going to judge the world. And the church, all those who are believers, are spared from this judgment. So, the tribulation, which follows the rapture, is for seven years, and it's split into two halves. And we're going to see this in our chapter today, which is chapter 11 of Revelation. So I'm just going to explain how it does this so you understand what it's talking about. So, it's a seven-year time period, but it's split into two halves. Now, sometimes it's described as three and a half years. Sometimes it's described as times time and half a time, meaning two plus one plus a half equals three and a half. Sometimes it's described as 42 months. So 12 plus 12 plus 12 plus 6 is 42. And sometimes it's described as 1,260 days. Now, that's a bit of a problem because you think, well, 365 days times three and a half does not equal 1,260. But that's because today we use the Gregorian calendar since about the 14th, 15th century, and that has close to 365 days in a calendar year. Okay, But when this was written, when Daniel received this vision about 2,500 years ago, they were using the Babylonian calendar, and that had 360 days per year. So back when Daniel wrote this, there were 360 days in a year. And so when you times 360 by three and a half, you get 
260. So whenever you read in the book of Revelation 42 months or 1,260 days, just think it's half of the tribulation, it's three and a half years. Does that make sense? Now, what is the purpose of the seven-year tribulation? Well, first, it's about God working with the nation of Israel to bring them to national repentance. And we studied a, a couple of weeks ago that Israel has been blinded by God temporarily and partially because of their sin. But it's only partial, and there's going to come a time when that blindness will be removed, or as the Bible says, the veil that's over their hearts will be removed, and they will respond. They will accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior by the end of the seven-year tribulation period. So during the seven years, God is going to work on the nation of Israel. He's going to cause them to turn to him, a great number of them. The other thing that God is going to do with Israel in the tribulation is he's going to call out 144,000 evangelists. He's going to call out these 144,000 people, men from the Jewish nation, 12,000 from each tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they are going to be used to bring about the greatest revival the world has ever seen in the darkest days the world has ever seen. So when things are at absolute worst, God does his absolute greatest work. That's a pretty good principle, isn't it? And we learned about these 144,000 witnesses in Revelation chapter 7. Now the second purpose, aside from Israel, of the seven-year tribulation period is the judgment of the world. The world is in rebellion against God, and God uses a series of judgments or plagues to bring the world to its knees and to see clearly the decision that they have between light and dark, good and evil, eternal life with God in heaven, and eternal separation from God in hell. God's motive for judging the world is not just righteousness, it's also mercy. He wants to see people repent. God shows mercy in judgment. God always gives people a second chance. So, the main verse that helps us to understand why there is a seven-year tribulation is Daniel 9.27. And it says, The ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven years. So as you can see there, I've highlighted that. The years is not in the original, it just says sevens. The context, you have to look at the context to determine that it's years. But after half this time, What's half again? Three and a half years, 42 months, or 1,260 days. He will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. And as a climax to all his terrible deeds, and we're talking about the Antichrist here, the ruler is the Antichrist, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. So, just to explain that, he's going to go and... We're going to look at other scriptures later to explain this more, but he's going to go into the Holy of Holies in the temple and he is going to set up an idol in there and sacrifice a pig in the Jewish temple, which will be rebuilt during the tribulation, at the start of the tribulation, and he's going to defile it. And that's what it means by desecration. And he will be allowed to continue until the end of the tribulation. 
And that's the second three and a half years, and he's going to basically rule the world. So, how does the tribulation start? Well, it says he makes a peace treaty with the people, and the people is the definite article, the people. It's the people of Israel. And it's for a period of one set of seven. It's seven years. So, how will you know who the Antichrist is? The first and most obvious sign, I mean, we won't be here. (laughs) That's good. But if you're still on the earth and you read your Bible, you will see, hang on, this man of sin, this evil dictator, he is going to confirm a covenant with the nation of Israel for seven years. Seven years. Now, this could never have happened before May 14th, 1948. Why? There was no Israel. Okay. And this is why we're living in the last days. May 14th, 1948, Israel became a nation. And what's even more obvious since then, and especially in the last 20 years or so, is a constant push for peace. I don't know if you've watched the news. There's all these peace, peace, peace. Trying to work for peace in the Middle East. But the Bible says that in the future, there will be a man who has the power to break a peace between Israel and the whole world. He will be a world dictator. He will have this power to break a peace between the Jews and the Muslims. They will be allowed to build their temple on the Temple Mount. Now, this process of this peace has already started, but there are still many obstacles and problems to world peace, which at the moment are unsolvable. It's impossible. But there will come a time when the conditions are right, I believe after the rapture, where the Antichrist will be revealed and he will confirm, he will have the power to confirm the seven-year treaty between Israel and the whole world. So, as I said, as part of that, he will allow them to rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. But what does it say he will do halfway through? But after half this time, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. So, they've got this temple, they've got this altar, they're sacrificing the sheep and the cattle, and the Jews think they've got everything great and going well for them. But then what does this guy do? He goes into the Holy of Holies, the most inner part of the temple, and sacrifices a pig and puts a statue of himself there. (laughs) Now they know he's not the Messiah. (laughs) Now they know he's an imposter. And he will prosper in his evil until Jesus comes back three and a half years later and destroys him. So this event that splits the tribulation into two halves was foretold by Daniel, by Jesus and Paul. And we'll go into the verses later. So the Antichrist desecrates the temple and proclaims himself to be God. Now at the same time, he's going to cause mankind to take the mark. You've probably seen this in the movies. The technology is ripe for this now. It's a mark of loyalty to Satan. Okay? To the Antichrist, he's called the beast in the Revelation. <laughs> a good name for him. But more importantly, it's the power within him, Satan. So the Antichrist is going to be indwelt or possessed by Satan himself. And this apparently peace-loving leader 
at this stage will be revealed as being pure evil, full of deception and the father of lies. So, what this means is that if you don't worship him and take his mark, you will die. You will be killed. If you do worship him, though, and you do take his mark, then you are doomed to eternity in hell. You have sealed your eternal destiny. And we've already learned in Revelation 7 and other places that many, many tribulation saints, those believers who come to Christ during the tribulation, will be killed for their faith. They'll be martyred during these awful seven years. The Bible also tells us that during the last half of the tribulation, the final three and a half years, 42 months or 1,260 days, the nation of Israel will be supernaturally sheltered and protected and fed, watered by God in the area that is now Jordan. That's the other side of the Jordan River. That's how we know it today. It's not called that in the Bible, but that's how we know it today. And the city of Jerusalem will be trampled or treated with contempt until Jesus comes back to claim the earth for his own. Because that's what happens at the end of the tribulation period. Jesus comes back physically with us, the church. Now, what happens after the tribulation? Just to finish the timeline off, you've got the rapture, you've got the seven-year tribulation, and then Jesus comes back. And you have the millennial reign, the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ right here on earth. Jesus will make the earth beautiful again. He will remake the earth so it's like the Garden of Eden. And he will rule perfectly. It will be a beautiful place to live. After the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ, this earth that we're living on, that Jesus remade, and the heavens and all the stars and the moon, everything will be dissolved or destroyed. Peter says it will be burned up in fervent heat. And then he will make the new heavens and the new earth, and we will live there forever and ever and ever in our glorified bodies with no more sin, and it'll be perfect. So that's the introduction to the book of Revelation and the tribulation. And I needed to tell you that because you need that background to understand what chapter 11 is telling us. And in chapter 11, it doesn't move the story on. Some parts move the story on. Like chronologically, this happened, this happened, this happened. But here, it's taking a step back and it's telling us about two very special men. They're sent by God during the first half of the tribulation to warn the world about this terrible Antichrist so that they will not be deceived. So basically, they start their ministry in Jerusalem on the day that this peace treaty is confirmed. And then three and a half years later, God allows the Antichrist to have the power to kill them and they die. They're laying down the street for three and a half days, and then God says, come up here, and they resurrect, and they go up. It's amazing. And the whole world sees, and that's what satellite TV does for you. So let's read Revelation chapter 11. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. How long is that? Three and a half years. Good. Okay, that's half of the tribulation. That's the second half. And I will give power to my two witnesses, 
and they will prophesy 1,260 days. How long is that? Three and a half years, and that's the, in the context of the first half of the tribulation, clothed in sackcloth. Verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven, so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. As we're going through, think about people in the Old Testament who had that kind of ministry. All right, verse 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So what city is that? Jerusalem. That's good, yep. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations, that is, all over the earth, will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another. It's like a satanic Christmas. Because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Verse 11. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and the enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was passed. Behold, the third woe was coming quickly. So let's just read verses 1 and 2 again. Start there. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot 42 months. So, before I start explaining what the verse is saying, I'm going to explain what the temple is and what its purpose is, and why the Jews want their temple. So, this is a diagram of the temple. So, this is the, the building part of it. The main section here, or the holy place, and this is a holy of holies. So this is where the Ark of the Covenant is, and we have in white, represented by white, the Shekinah glory, the literal, physical, visible presence of God in the temple. Then you've got the altar of incense, where they would offer the incense and would represent our prayers, the table of showbread, and the menorah, a seven-candle lampstick. Then out here is a laver full of water, they'd wash their hands and feet, and here they'd burn the offerings, the altar of burnt offerings. And you'd have a veil here, and a veil here, and a curtain there as well. 
when the Antichrist comes, he's going to come into Holy of Holies and set up his statue in here. Okay, he's going to desecrate that part of the temple. So, the temple is where sacrifices were made, where sheep, cattle, goats, birds, grain, oil, and salt were offered to God. And what do they point to? Jesus. They point to Jesus. They're all a picture of the work that Jesus has done for us. In John one twenty nine, does anyone know what John one twenty nine says? John the Baptist looks at somebody and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's looking at Jesus, okay? Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the final sacrifice. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that's why the Jews want to have their temple. Because without a temple, they can't offer sacrifices. And if they can't offer sacrifices, there's no forgiveness for their sins. But you see, they still are rejecting Jesus as the sacrifice. And they're still looking to live according to the law. So basically what would happen in the Old Testament sacrifices, it's a picture of a saviour. Okay, the, the lamb is a picture of the saviour. It points to a need for a saviour where someone would be the payment for our sins. Someone would take the punishment our sins deserve by dying in our place as a substitutionary sacrifice. That's a big word. Substitutionary means in my place. So in the Old Testament sacrifices, the guilty person, and like if I told a lie or something like that, or whatever it might have been, I put my hand on the sheep, cow, goat, whatever it might be, and confess my sin, and symbolically the sin will be transferred onto the animal. And now I'm ceremonially or symbolically clean. The animal is now symbolically guilty, and so it must die. And so the idea is that someone died, so I don't have to. The sins, my sins, were symbolically transferred to the innocent animal. And that's what happened on the cross. When I come to Jesus, I'm real, I'm kind of symbolically placing my hand on his head, confessing my sins, and they're transferred to him. And he becomes guilty of the sins that I committed, and I receive his righteous, perfect life. It's very unfair. He lived a perfect life, and I get rewarded for it. And he didn't do any sins, but he gets punished for my sins. And that's what the temple is all about. But the Jews shouldn't be looking to get the temple built because, why? Why shouldn't the Jews be looking to get the temple built? Do they need to keep sacrificing? No, of course not, because Jesus has already come. He's already made the perfect sacrifice. There are no more sacrifices necessary. But today, to this very day, the nation of Israel as a whole are continuing, well, with a few exceptions, of course, are continuing to reject Jesus as their Messiah, as their Savior. And therefore, that's why they need this temple. In their mind, they need this temple. And the religious Jews are increasingly pushing hard to get the temple rebuilt. 
And today, many of the preparations are already complete. Like, for example, the menorah, the, the lampstand, the seven lamp lampstand, all the clothing, the priestly clothing, the altars, the, the candles, the, the animals, and the priestly training, all that kind of thing. It's all ready to go. So as soon as they get permission to build the temple, it'll happen. And Revelation 11, chapter 11, is a part of the fulfillment of several of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the nation of Israel. Now the first one I'm going to look at is God has kept his promise to bring the people of Israel who were scattered all over the world back into the land of Israel as promised. And that is Isaiah 11, 11 to 12. I just want to show you all this was predicted by God a long time ago and what we're seeing in this modern era since 1948 is a fulfillment of prophecies that were made thousands of years ago. So Isaiah 11, 11 to 12 says, In that day the Lord will reach out his hand a second time. The first time was after Babylon. When they were taken to Babylon, he brought them out. That was the first time. But now, in our lifetime, it's coming true. Now, it's the second time. To bring back the remnant of his people, that's the Jewish people, those who remain in Assyria and northern Egypt and southern Egypt and Ethiopia and Elam and Babylonia and Hamath and all the distant coastlands, he will raise a flag among the nations and assemble the exiles of Israel. He will gather the scattered people of Judah from the ends of the earth. That just means all over the earth. And again, this is literally happening before our very eyes. Another amazing fulfillment of prophecy about the nation of Israel is that God said in Isaiah 66 verse 8 that it would happen in one day. He would create a nation in one day. And that literally happened back in May 14, 1948. One day there was no Israel, and the next day there was a nation. So just read that verse together. Before the birth pangs even begin, Jerusalem gives birth to a son. Who has ever seen anything as strange as this? Who ever heard of such a thing? Has a nation ever been born in a single day? Has a country ever come forth in a mere moment? But by the time Jerusalem's birth pangs begin, her children will be born. So you imagine a woman who's pregnant. Well, she doesn't even have time to have any birth pangs. The baby just pops out. That's the picture. All right? The picture is that the baby comes out so quickly, there's not even time for the first contraction to begin. So again, one day the nation of Israel didn't exist, and then the next day it did. And what happened, there was a very, very close United Nations vote. But it's a miracle, because the United Nations hates Israel, and yet they voted for its existence to become a nation. That's God's hand in all these things. Another amazing prophecy, we're not going to read it, is Ezekiel 37. It gives a two-part prediction, not only of the regathering, but also the spiritual awakening of the nation, where they will, a good part, a large part of the nation, receive Jesus as their Messiah. They'll turn back to him, accept him as their Messiah. And the first part of that prophecy, the physical regathering and establishing of the nation, has already been fulfilled. So what we're seeing now is prophecy is partially fulfilled and we're just waiting in our lifetime, maybe, for the rest of it to happen. The second part of that prophecy in Ezekiel 37 will happen 
sometime before Jesus comes back, or even when he comes back, they'll accept him as their Messiah. So again, I'm just showing you that we are close to the end of the church age. And the events foretold in Revelation chapter 11 are probably not too far away. Now, why do the Jews want this temple? Well, I've explained it a little bit already, but in their misguided zeal to attain righteousness by keeping the law, they're going to end up embracing the Antichrist as their Messiah. Because they're not accepting the true Messiah, therefore they'll accept the false Messiah. Anti doesn't mean opposite like you know, black and white, it just means a counterfeit. Like a good counterfeit is really hard to tell. You know, counterfeit money. If you got good counterfeit money, it's really hard to tell. You can trick people. And that's what this Antichrist is. He's a counterfeit Christ. So, let's read Romans 10, 1-4. And this explains why Israel wants the temple. Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of... This is Paul speaking. The longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. The energy is put in the wrong spot. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. Verse 4. For God has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. So, the only way to be made right with God is through believing in what Jesus has done for us already on the cross. And so the children of Israel, in wanting this temple, are actually still rejecting God. So, yes, the temple will be rebuilt in the first half of the tribulation, but it will be a curse to the people of Israel because it will just encourage them to continue to ignore Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as the payment all sins for all time. And that's Hebrews. But now, once for all time, he, Jesus, has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. So it's really important that we get this down. Jesus has already come. Sin has been dealt with. But the Jews are not accepting that. They're still rejecting their Messiah. And as I said, if they reject the true Messiah, they will accept the false Messiah. And that's what Jesus said in John 5.43. I, Jesus, have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Now that works the same in us. We can, if we choose to walk away from God, we'll walk away from the truth, we'll accept a lie, we'll be deceived. So, most likely, this Antichrist is going to be received as a political saviour. Do you remember when Jesus came the first time, what they wanted from him? What do they want Jesus to do for them? Get rid of the Romans, yeah. We want to be free. We want to have a nation where we're not under bondage to any other nation. We want freedom from our enemies. We want success. We want good finances. You know, we want to have a prosperous nation. You know, Jesus made all the food for them, fed the 5,000. What did they try to do? They tried to make him a king. Okay, because, well, this king, he can give us food. If he's powerful, he can free us from the Romans. That's the kind of king they wanted, and that's the kind of king they 
Still one. Nothing's changed. So they'll be deceived. They will be fooled by the offer of being able to rebuild the temple and will also be deceived by his lying wonders, as will many others. This is what the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10. This man, the Antichrist, will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. However, at the halfway point, the Antichrist will reveal his true colors. As we've talked about before, he will go into the Holy of Holies, he will sacrifice a pig, he will set up an idol of himself, an image of himself, and he will desecrate the temple. Now what's going to happen to the children of Israel? They'll have to flee. Okay, They'll have to get out of there and God will look after them in the nation of Jordan. And this is where we start to come in and look at the these two witnesses. These two witnesses play a really important role. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 again. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So, this reed like a measuring rod, why did God want them to measure this place? Well, in the scriptures, if you measure something, it's a picture that you own it, that it's yours, that you have authority over it. For example, Habakkuk 3.6, when Habakkuk prophesied, it says he stood and measured the earth. So the idea is that the Lord owned the earth and he could do with it as he pleased. Does that make sense? God owns it, he can measure it, it's his. All right, He's in control. So God is in control of this temple. It doesn't mean it's a good thing it's built, but it means that he's in control. Now, this whole concept that God is in charge is really important. There's a word used in the book of Revelation nine times. It's only used ten times in the whole New Testament, but nine of those times in the book of Revelation, and it's translated as Almighty. The Almighty God. And the Greek word is Pantocrator, and it describes what it means is the one who has his hand on everything, the one who is in control, absolute control. All right, so who's in control? God is. It looks like everything else is out of control, but God is in control. And a quote from David Guzik The temple built during the seven year tribulation will be the scene of great horror and great glory, but God is in charge working through both the good and bad actions of men. And as an application for us, if we can accept that God is in control of world events, can we accept that God is in control of our lives and the circumstances that affect us? Because things happen to us, and we go, that's terrible. Hang on a second. How can it be terrible if it came from God? If God allowed that, how can it be terrible? Now, we don't say... Thank you, God, that I had a car accident. But we say, Lord, what do you want to teach me from this? Can we trust God? Do we trust him that he is in control, that he's got a good purpose for everything that happens in our lives? Remember what Joseph said? 
to his brothers. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So God is in control. And the life of Joseph is a fantastic example of this in a person's individual life. So, again, back to this temple diagram. Just go through the what Jesus calls the abomination of desolation. And again, it's predicted by Daniel in the book of Daniel, Jesus in the book of Matthew, and also Paul in the book of Second Thessalonians chapter two verse three. In Second Thessalonians chapter two verse three to four it says that the Antichrist would sit in the temple as God. He would go in there and proclaim himself to be God. But he's not God, he's a counterfeit. So as Christians we get excited that the temple is being rebuilt because it represents the fulfillment of this prophecy. We can know we're getting towards the end, right? We're going to be raptured and taken up to heaven. But just a reminder, we need to understand that the, the reason or motive that the Jews are having for building this temple is to have a place to sacrifice animals, and that's wrong. They're still rejecting God. It's an offense. The scriptures say it's an offense to God because they're denying the finished work of Christ on the cross. So here's another drawing of the temple. And it says, do not measure the outer court. So this is the temple mount. And what you have is the priests are in here, the men here, the women here, the women's court. And on the outside, you have the court of the Gentiles. So if you're an Israelite woman, you can go into this section. If you're an Israelite man, you can go through that one and into this section. If you're a priest, you can go into this section. Does that make sense? So the court of the Gentiles is this whole area on the outside. Now why do you think it says not to measure the court of the Gentiles? Anyone seen a picture of the Temple Mount? I should have brought one. There's the Dome of the Rock Mosque there, right? Guess where that's going to be? Right about here. Because we just went there January, James and Marissa and myself and the girls. This is the Dome of the Spirits. The mosque is just, if I'm looking at this here, it's the mosque is behind me. It's about oh, 100 meters, 50 meters, something like that, behind me. So this is called the Dome of the Spirits. And inside there is a flat rock. It's not pavement, it's flat rock, it's bedrock. And they believe that is the site where the original Holy of Holies, the original temple, was built. And if you stand there and you figure out where the eastern gate is, you can look straight through. And they say that the high priest from the Holy of Holies could look, and the temple's facing east, look out through the first veil of the entrance from the Holy of Holies to the holy place, and then outside the temple and through the outer gate, and you look straight through the eastern gate. It all matches up. It's all perfect. So there is room on the Temple Mount today to build the temple. You'd have about, someone measured it, somewhere around 10 meters or so spare room between the outside of the temple, the, the main courts, and the Dome of the Rock. So this can happen. All it needs is someone to give permission. And there's got to be someone pretty powerful because you've got to deal with the Muslims. <laughs> All right, you know, that's not going to happen 
under the current circumstances. <laughs> yeah, if you know the Muslims. So in verse 2 it says, And they will tread the holy city underfoot. The holy city is Jerusalem. And for the last three and a half years, it's going to be treated with contempt. This is the holy city and the Antichrist is going to treat it with contempt. And the Antichrist is going to pour out his fury in the people of Israel. That's in Revelation 12, 13 to 17 and Matthew 24, 15 to 28. So now we come to the ministry of the two witnesses. So it starts getting really interesting here. And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So I'm going to give you an idea of who they are at the end. All right? So you, you can think about who they might be. It's two figures. No one knows for certain exactly who they are, but I've got a, most people have a fairly good idea of who they probably are. So these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have the power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So, these two witnesses, their ministry will be prophetic. They will prophesy. Sackcloth. Why are they wearing sackcloth? Repentance. They want the people to repent. When people were confessing their sin, they were also mourning as well, so mourning over their sin. And it says the ministry will be effective when it says, I will give power. Now, it says there's this cryptic thing. It says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Now, this is a picture, and as usual, we need to use our cross-references to go find out where this appears in the Bible. It appears in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 and 14. I won't read it all now for time's sake, but Zechariah sees in this vision a lampstand, and next to the lampstand, the seven candle lampstand, the menorah, there's two trees. And so instead of the priests having to tip oil into all the lamps and keep them burning, the oil is constantly flowing from these trees into the lamp. There's a continuous supply of oil from these trees. Now the trees are identified as the anointed ones. And originally that was Zerubbabel and Joshua at the time. And they were used to rebuild the temple after the Babylonian captivity. Because they needed encouragement, they needed strength, they needed power to do this work, which was very difficult at the time. But here, the anointed ones are the two witnesses. This is being applied to the two witnesses. So what it means is that the two witnesses have a continual empowering from the Holy Spirit. A continual empowering from the Holy Spirit. So, application for us. You probably heard this verse. This verse comes from that chapter where it talks about these trees and the candlestick. It says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 4, 6. And there's a comment by Guzek. He explains this. Might focuses on collective strength. The resources of a group or army. So, you know, we might think, oh, wow, we're a big church or whatever. We've got lots of money. We've got all these resources. We can do all this stuff. That's might. Power is individual strength. But God says, I'm going to accomplish my will, not through 
the resources of many people, not through the power of one person, but by the Spirit of God. So when we trust in our own resources, whether they be small or great in the eyes of men, then we won't enjoy the full supply of the Spirit. If we're trusting in our own selves, our own resources, our own community, then God will say, okay, you do that. (laughs) Have fun. But when you're ready, you can come to me and I'll give you a hand. (laughs) So the two witnesses are going to be characterized by their continual reliance on the Holy Spirit. Now, in Zechariah, it says the anointed ones is literally sons of oil. And it's an idiom, Hebrew idiom. So the son of something means it characterizes that person. So if I said I was a a son of basketball, I would be consumed with basketball. Everything I would think about would be basketball. But these are sons of oil. These are consumed with God. These two witnesses are consumed with following Jesus, with relying on Jesus. So they're going to need to because they're going to face some very stiff opposition. They're going to have the Antichrist possessed by Satan himself. Or the whole demonic forces will be fighting against them. So for us, though, think about what Paul prayed. This is an application for us. Ephesians six nineteen to 20. And pray for me too. Ask God to give me the right words so that I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. I am in chains now, still preaching this message as God's ambassador. So pray that I will keep on speaking boldly for him as I should. So, what did Paul pray? Ask God to give me the right words so I can boldly explain. Yeah. So if that was the Apostle Paul asking for strength to be bold and to share the gospel, how much more us? Does that make sense? We need God's Spirit working in us to be effective to expand and work in God's kingdom. Because without God, we can do nothing, nothing of eternal value. In verse 5 it says, If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. So they have special protection from God. You remember Elijah in Second Kings? <laughs> the soldiers came and said, Hey, come down here, man of God. And he says, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and destroy you. And 50 soldiers and their commander burnt to a crisp. And another set of 50 soldiers come. Hey, man of God, come here. You. Oh, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and destroy you. <laughs> Destroys them. Third time, the commander was this smart. Please, man of God, please come. Please don't destroy us. <laughs> and he says, okay, I'll come. It's, it's Elijah. It's part of the ministry of Elijah. And these have the power to shut heaven. Now it says that they will basically indicate there that they will stop it raining for how long? Three and a half years. Now who did that in the Old Testament? Elijah. Yeah. I'm giving you hints here who these people might be, right? Now the other one. Turn the waters to blood. Who did that? <laughs> Moses, yeah. And strike the earth with plagues. Who did that in the Old Testament? Moses. Okay. So, probably is Moses and Elijah. I'll get back into that more later. Now, we go to the next section when these witnesses are killed. Now, 
when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, Satan most likely, a powerful angel, if it's not Satan, it's another powerful angel, evil angel, will make war against them, overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of their great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So, who's going to make war against them? The enemy, Satan, right? He will overcome them and kill them. All right, there's two witnesses are killed by the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. And Revelation 9.11 shows that it's most likely Satan himself. But notice that their witness, their testimony, is not cut short. Because it says there, when they finish their testimony. You notice that? When, the first line, when they finish their testimony. So, guess what? I am invincible until I have finished what God has got me to do. And so are you. God has given us a work to do, and he will protect us until that work is finished. We are indestructible until the day God calls us home. The day they finished their ministry, the protection was taken and they were killed. The devil does not have power over our lives. We are witnesses of the Lord and he will protect us until our testimony is finished. And I want to just point out the difference between being a witness and giving testimony. A witness is not something I do or say, it's who I am. It's how I think. It's who I am. Am I a loving person? Am I a godly person? But giving testimony is what a witness says and does. So by my actions and my words, I give testimony. And then the dead bodies would lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So Sodom, what do you know about Sodom? What was that like? Full of sexual immorality, homosexuality and things like that. Egypt, what does that remind you of? Slavery, yeah, slavery, okay, oppression, slavery. So in the city of Jerusalem, there was sexual immorality, there was oppression, slavery. And the great city is a term often applied to Babylon, and there's lots of verses in Revelation, especially verses through chapters 16 through 18. So if the Jewish leaders are in cahoots with the Antichrist, accepting him as their false messiah, then that's exactly how you expect Jerusalem to be. Full of immorality, corruption, bondage, oppression, and a base of satanic power. Verse 10, Then those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another. Now we're coming up to Christmas. What do we do at Christmas? We rejoice, make merry, and send gifts to one another. Okay, So this is like a satanic Christmas. <laughs> they are rejoicing over the death of these two witnesses. These people have no sympathy for these prophets whatsoever. Now it says that they're going to be seen by how many people? Verse 12. They're going to be seen by everybody. 
verse 10. So they're going to be saved by everybody. Now, there's older theologians. They had real problems with this because they said that's impossible. This can't be literally true. This can't be going to be seen by everybody. That's just a metaphor. No. And we've talked about this before. All prophecy must be fulfilled literally, okay? Taking into account the signs and symbols. There's a literal meaning for those signs and symbols. Find that out, and you've got a literal interpretation or literal fulfillment of that prophecy. So, basically, we can trust what the Bible says. Even if we don't know how it's going to happen, we can trust that it will happen. And if those Bible scholars from 50, 60 years ago were alive today, they go, oh, whoops. I should have just trusted what the Bible said to be true instead of doubting it. The Bible will always be shown to be true. So the witnesses will be killed, everyone will see it, and everyone will see them lying on the ground, and everyone will see them resurrect as they come back. Yeah, the media. Satellite TV. All right. CNN. So they're going to make merry and send gifts to one another. And this shows what the heart of man is like. These people living on the earth at this time have rejected God to the point where they rejoice when his people are killed. That's how bad it is. All right, That's what it's going to be like living as a Christian or as a tribulation saint in this environment. People will rejoice if you're killed. They will hate you that much. Now, application for us. Jesus said, if they hate me, then they'll also hate you. So First John 7 verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. So what's one of the things that we do as Christians? Is we testify that its works are evil. We have to remind them that they have broken God's laws if they are going to see the need for the Saviour. That's not a popular thing to do. And in John 15, 18 to 21, it says, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. Did you hear that? You are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, meaning Jesus, Naturally, they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They would do all this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. They've rejected the Father. So, I encourage you, get used to being hated, mocked, and ridiculed for your witness and testimony for God. Expect it, embrace it, and be proud of it. Jesus was. Jesus embraced the disgrace and the shame, if you read Hebrews. And so did the disciples. I'm just going to read one of the examples there. Acts 5, 40-42. The other Pharisees accepted the advice of this high priest, I think it was. They called in the apostles. This is when they were arrested for teaching that Jesus had risen from the dead. And they're being persecuted. They called in the apostles and had them flogged. So the religious leaders had the apostles called in and and they were flogged, whipped. 
the religious leaders order them never again to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. Now look at the response of the apostles in verse 41. The apostles left the high council, the Jewish council, rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. That's pretty cool, eh? That's the attitude that we should have. The apostles left the high council, the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they continued to teach and preach this message, Jesus is the Messiah. They were told not to, but they said, we can't not obey God. We have to obey God rather than man. And verse 10 it says, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So the preaching of these two witnesses and the call to repentance was a torment for many people because they had embraced evil. They loved their sin. And so sometimes people who love their sin will not give a good response to the gospel. It will bother them. Okay, now the next section, 11 to 14, the last part for today. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and the enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, and in the earthquake seven thousand people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. So, they're laying on the street for three and a half days. They'd be stinking by now. The bodies would be swelling. And then suddenly, everybody on satellite TV hears this voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they rise from the dead. Their bodies, you know, they've probably given their glorified bodies at this stage, I'm guessing. And they up to heaven. So, what does this mean? They are God's ambassadors. Now, if a country is going to war, what do they do with their ambassadors? They call their ambassadors home. They take them out of that country. Okay. So the second half of the tribulation is called the Great Tribulation. It's a time of great judgment. It's a time of war. God is going to be judging. Now, we've been through the two witnesses. I was going to do it now, but I've kind of hinted about it. It's most likely Elijah. And Moses, I just want to finish with a quick application. And I just got a quote from John Corson. These witnesses are examples of what you can be in the last days in which we live. You ought to share the gospel with people. Yes, you'll be beat up emotionally and verbally, ostracized, left out, not invited to the party. But do you know what will happen? Three and a half days later, you'll rise. There will be a spring in your step and joy in your heart as you find yourself soaring like emotionally and spiritually. Truly, gang, there is nothing, nothing, nothing like sharing your faith. Even if you're put down, beat up, left out, you'll find yourself revived. If you feel your relationship with the Lord is stagnant or dry, witness, I guarantee, like the two witnesses in Revelation 11, you'll be caught up into heavenly places. Witnessing is the single most important way I have found to see my own faith revived and renewed. So and just to finish with this last verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a what? 
new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. He's given us. This is a privilege that we have. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we can be made right with God through Christ. So this is the message or the role that the two witnesses have. We have the same message. We have the same role. We are ambassadors to turn people's hearts back to God, telling them that their sins have been dealt with on the cross. Jesus became the offering for sin. He died in their place. So be in the word, be in prayer, be in fellowship, and be in God's will as we listen to and obey the Holy Spirit as he leads us to talk and share with others. Father, thank you for this amazing passage. Lord, this dark days where, Lord, you realize that the mark is about to be rolled out and there's people dying for their faith. Uh, the world is evil. People are evil and uh, many are unrepentant and making merry when righteous people are killed. But in those dark days, the greater the darkness, the greater the light. And we know that there's going to be a multitude of people who are saved during these dark times. Lord, you're righteous and you're true, but you're also merciful. So thank you for the many chances you give us now to be saved. But Lord, the, just like in the tribulation, there's going to come a time when your mercy will, in a sense, end because the church will be taken up. And then that's it. You'll be forced to go through the tribulation. You will have a chance to repent and choose to believe in Christ, but you will suffer as you are persecuted in the tribulation period. So I just pray, Father, that we can tell as many people as we can about you so that they don't have to go into and experience this awful time, the tribulation, where the Antichrist, controlled and dominated and guided by Satan, uh, rules the world. So we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.